Okay everybody, welcome to episode 3 of the Forward Together podcast, series 3. My name is Jared Dean, I work for Hollywell Trust. We produce this podcast with the help and support of Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm grand, Jared, how are you? Aye, dead on, dead on, all good. So, we're continuing the conversations with people we've already heard in this series from Simon Hoare and Duncan Morrow. Um, Today we have Tony Gallagher. Do you want to tell people who Tony Gallagher is for those that don't know? Yeah, Tony's probably the most respected voice of, of educational analysis in Northern Ireland. He is the Professor of Education at Queen's University. He's a former uh, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Queen's University. Uh, and he has done a lot of work looking at education at all stages of education, looking at uh, whether uh, academic selection is the right approach, what it means, what it signifies, and also about how we raise the skills level and educational levels and outcomes across Northern Ireland. And it's a really important conversation because throughout the last two series, education has been pointed to by many contributors as this could be one of the things that saves us here or one of the things that helps create a, a better society for all. Let's integrate the system, let's do whatever. But it's not that simple, um, as we all could appreciate. There's reviews of education currently underway. The challenges that Tony highlights, there's many, many, Paul, many. Often when we talk about reconciliation within Northern Ireland, the answer is put forward as educational integration or sharing. But the problems we've got in the education system in Northern Ireland go far beyond the issue of what role schools play in terms of binding or separating our society. It's also about whether we have a class division and actually kids from more affluent family backgrounds are given a strong advantage through academic selection, but also the fact that we don't have the skills in our workforce that we need. We actually have a very divided outcome within our education system with lots of kids doing very well, going on to university, achieving good uh, good jobs afterwards, but also a much higher percentage of school leavers that don't have basic skills and can't actually get good jobs as an outcome. So that we've got two different types of problems of our education system. One is the role it plays in separating our society, but the other is that it doesn't give us the skill base to create a more affluent society with more high paid jobs. Yeah, that's just one of the things I find really interesting from the conversation is like Tony points out there's an A-level and university fixation within the system here, and but that only serves half the people, half the pupils that go through the system. And we don't know enough about what happens to those who maybe don't achieve that or go through that process. I'm not going to say that it's a better process to go through, but who go to university, we don't know what happens to the people that don't. Yeah, and, and that in itself is, is, is a two-stage problem as well, Gerard. One is that uh, we don't have the same focus on vocational skills that we do on academic uh, outcomes, and that clearly is wrong. We need to have at least as much focus on achieving vocational skills. But the other thing is, and, and this is a point Tony makes very often, uh, and I've spoken with him uh, elsewhere about this, the fact that we don't understand why so many, in particular, working class boys drop out of the school system, cease to be engaged, don't achieve good results at school. Why don't they? 
is it a problem within the school is it a problem within well you know we don't just don't understand and we don't really follow through the the system doesn't collate the data to say what happens to school leavers other than those at the very best outcome level of schooling. So we know what happens to them, we know where they go to in terms of college or university, we know what jobs they get, but we don't actually have the data about the other kids that actually are in a sense the biggest problem we've got within our society. We have far too many working class boys in particular who drop out of the system and and have their lives blighted as a result probably. Okay, well let's hear the chat that you had with Tony now. Thanks very much for doing this, uh, Tony. It's much appreciated. So the purpose of these conversations is to discuss how we make progress for the future in Northern Ireland, building on the previous podcast we've done, which have been financed by the CRC. Now, because you are recognised as an expert on education, I'm particularly keen to have your views on how educational provision in Northern Ireland should be reformed, assuming it should be reformed. Yeah, well, there's... Obviously, there's, there's, there is a, an independent review of education that's been announced, <clears throat> um, and uh, there's recruitment is underway to get a the panel together for that, and it's supposed to start uh, in the very near future. Um, the there's clear there's there's lots of things that need to be addressed and changed, um, and it will hopefully open up a very interesting discussion. Um, I would worry that past experience suggests that politicians would actually bite the bullet and, and actually implement any of the changes. But I mean, if we put that aside for the moment, um, I think um, the, the system we have is very conservative. Um, it's very inward looking. Um, it's based, there's a lot of aspects of it are very, very traditional and haven't been changed for years. Uh, and so there is, I think, a need to, um, to change some very fundamental things. The selective system um, is long past its sell-by date. Um, the qualifications at 16 were designed at a time for a time when most young people left school at 16 and went into the world of work and that no longer happens anymore. Uh, the A-level system was really designed to get young people into university and there continues to be a fixation with that as the only um, uh, uh, sort of privileged outcome from education. And so we need to do something about that because even though the, the proportion of kids going to university is, is much higher now than it used to be, um, uh, half of uh, our, our young people don't go to university, uh, but we don't give sufficient attention to what happens to them. Um, then we have the, this, the, the, the denominational divide in the system and we need to do something about that because uh, one of the, I think one of the most uh, one of the one of the features of our system is this fixation with qualifications, as if that is the point of education. When qualifications are a way station to other things, they're not the purpose. Um, and in a place like Northern Ireland, with our history, uh, with our continuing divisions, education should play a much more significant and explicit role around preparing our young people for citizenship, uh, to, to play an active part in our society. Um, and that's something that 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 raises the issue about how we deal with with diversity, uh, uh, the denominational divide, but also the increasing diversity of our society. So there's a huge agenda of issues there, um, and uh, all of these are going to have to be tackled uh, by the review. Um, and I hope that all of them are. And I hope that some imaginative and creative ideas comes out of the review process. 
Now, that's an incredibly long agenda there, Tony. I mean, just to pick on one of the points, you mentioned the age 16. I mean, in England, of course, you've got a school leaving age of 18. We've still got a school leaving age of 16. Is that one of the things that should be considered? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the reality is that uh, uh, at the moment, about three quarters of young people who leave school uh, don't actually leave education. Uh, they stay in some form of education, whether it's whether it's in further education or higher education or the youth training system. Um, but one of the things which is which is which is a weakness, or it's going to be a weakness of the independent review, is that the independent review is focused on schools. Uh, it's called the independent review of education. It's actually going to be in a review of our school system, and it's not going to incorporate a consideration um, in any sort of significant sense of the the other parts of the education system. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and, uh, you could raise the school leaving age to eighteen. Uh, you could follow Tony Benn and say people should be connected to education throughout their life. Um, there's no good reason why that shouldn't be the case. Um, the the key thing is seeing seeing education. Uh, as a holistic thing um, and having a a better sense of what it's for what its purpose in society is and then gearing all the things we do within that to meet those various purposes rather than simply trundling on as if the point of education is the same as it was 20 or 30 years ago now i think you mentioned just now that a quarter of 16 year olds don't go into continued further education um but actually, quite a few of those have effectively dropped out from the educational system at an earlier age. They are typically from deprived working class environments. So what are we going to do to reform the schooling system that not only wants them to be engaged beyond the six, age of 16, but actually wants them to continue to be engaged at an earlier age? Yeah, well, one, one of the key things we need to do is to find out what happens to young people as they go through the school system. And at the moment, <clears throat> we have the most detail about the young people who, uh, uh, if you like, are successful at every point uh, and leave school to go to university. And in fact, we know, by and large, what happens to those that are successful in university and graduate. We know what happens to them three to five years down the road, what, what sort of job they're in, the amount that they're earning, all this sort of thing. We know least about the young people who leave school at the first opportunity, going to the youth training system, often with low qualifications, and we've no idea, I don't think much of an idea of what happens next. That order of information is completely the wrong way around. We should know more about the young people who are failed by our education system, because those are the bits that we need to focus attention on to fix. Um, in order to do all of that, we need to have a clearer sense of the outcomes, the longer term outcomes for everyone. We can see then the the, um, the routes which are leading somewhere meaningful and the routes which aren't. And if there are some routes that are, aren't providing young people with a meaningful outcome from their time in education, then we need to do something to try and change that. Either provide alternative routes or fix the, uh, the routes that are currently there. At the moment, we're in these areas where operating blind. We don't know what happens, and because we're not quite sure what's happened, what's happened, we're not quite sure what to do about it. But you probably have an idea. Well, the, I mean, all the, the evidence suggests that young people who, who leave school with few qualifications um, end up in low-paid transient jobs um, and that uh, struggle from that point on. 
Uh, that's not an outcome which is good for them, and it's not an outcome which is good for society. Uh, but uh, absent any clear information about the outcomes of all the routes, because we tend to focus laser-like on the university route, um, the, uh, we, we, we don't have the, the basic information to attract attention and give priority to these issues. Uh, we have occasional studies looking at needs, uh, young people who aren't in education, training or employment. Uh, but we need to think of it in terms of in, in more longer. And we can do it very easily now because of the capacity to match data across a whole range of different government data sets. So we could actually map out these educational routes if there was a will to do it. Uh, but until we, until we have a basic map of those outcomes, it's very difficult to know uh, where best to intervene and how to intervene. I've been very taken by the suggestion from Pivotal, the, the think tank, that there should be careers guidance basically at the entry point into post-primary education, uh, because my assumption has been that if people are disengaged when they are at school, it might well be because they don't see what their future career is going to be and they don't see the connection between schooling and that future career. I mean, do you think that's a, a reasonable analysis? Well, I think there's, there's plenty of evidence that uh, the careers education needs to be looked at uh, uh, and enhanced really quite significantly. And there was some work going on in this, I think, a few years ago that was one of the many things that sort of got pushed to the side because of the, the break uh, in the Assembly for a while. So I'm not well, there, there was a report published last year by OECD that was commissioned by the Department for the Economy, which concluded that the careers guidance system in Northern Ireland is failing and it's not sufficiently coherent yeah. and it's one of the major problems we've got. Yeah, I mean, a lot of career, careers guidance in a lot of schools is about which university you get to. Uh, you know, it's not about it's not about employment and jobs. Um, uh, and and at part that's because for careers teachers in schools, the next stage isn't the labour market for most young people. It's another step in the education system. So that's what they prepare themselves for. Um, you know, we have a one of one of the big advances we made some years ago was creating the entitlement curriculum, which uh, was. Uh, it was to be a guarantee by every school that every young person would have access to a wide range of, uh, of uh, curricular opportunities in traditional academic uh, subjects, but also in, in vocational and technical subjects. Um, I think officially the, the entitlement framework has been met, although I think I get the impression that in many places it's met on paper rather than in fact. Um, but you know, if we had if we had a stronger, clearer um, uh, body of vocational qualifications linked more strategically into the FE colleges and linked then strategically into um, employment. Um, the the outcome is what gives which gives value and strength to all the things that comes from it. So if we if we can provide every young person with a roadmap of different opportunities uh, towards different outcomes and they can see if they're doing something at a particular stage where what sort of doors are open to them what, and uh, what sort of opportunities might uh, be available down the road because of it. I think that is going to provide a lot more value to the, the opportunities which are there. At the moment, a lot of the, the chat in schools is around whether you can get into university or not, and that's a much, much too narrow a terrain. There's another connected issue here, Tony, which as a parent of someone, of kids that left school not that long ago, particularly bugs me, which is because of the denominational character of the school and because the schools are not that large and because you have sixth form within the schools rather than collectively outside of the existing school structure, your kids actually end up not having very much examination choice 
at yeah. A level. And so effectively, they either have to change school or else they do the exam subjects which fits for the school's preferences. And even where they've got a shared arrangement with other schools, they don't always work that well because of the difficulties of timetabling. I mean, is the solution to actually get all kids to leave at 16, 17 and to go into sixth form colleges? Or should the well, FE colleges be restructured to provide that service? Um, it's, it's possible. There, there, there have been suggestions at various points that post-16, uh, you could have sixth form colleges providing a wide range of subjects sitting alongside the FE colleges uh, with their post-16 provision. Um, the, uh, uh, there are some places where the, uh, uh, the pooling of uh, resources and support by schools in shared arrangements does work. Um, and that's one of, with this, that was the original idea of the entitlement framework because part of the original logic of it was that um, uh, hardly any, if any, schools could, could meet the entitlement framework by themselves. But if they worked in collaboration with other schools uh, in a local area, then it might be possible to, 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 to do that. Um, the, uh, uh, this happens in some of the shared education partnerships. Obviously, they vary enough. A lot, as you say, some work incredibly well, some are, some struggle a little bit. It was a, a point that was made by the Bain Review in 2006 uh, about the limited provision, uh, but that was that was also linked to the the the, the market pressures on schools. Schools were forced to compete. And for a secondary school in particular, having a, some A-levels to offer uh, helped give it some market position. Uh, so it was working for the school. It wasn't necessarily working for the young people in the school. Uh, and again, if we look at what's happening in a lot of other countries, uh, the in many places we're getting past the idea that a single school can provide everything that all the young people in that school needs and schools work collaboratively, teachers work collaboratively. Um, and I think that's, so there's, there's a number of different sort of options there. The key thing is, because this is one of the, one of the baleful uh, practices which we still continue, we still have that hangover from the uh, sort of the, the Thatcherite reforms of, of the uh, 1990s, where schools, uh, FE colleges and universities are in competition with one another. By, by being forced to pursue their own narrow self-institutional interest that doesn't necessarily work for the good of the education system of a whole as a whole for young people as a whole or for northern ireland as a whole so trying to find those ways in which you can link collaboratively and strategically to try and provide best outcomes for young people seems to me to be a much more sensible way forward and this is part of it given every genuinely given every young person a proper range of experience or, or opportunity in terms of curriculums that they might follow i always felt that the thatcher reforms delivered for the benefit of the some of the public sector providers rather than the end consumers and that's probably an example where actually the schools are powerful and the pupils and their parents aren't. Well to, to an extent because the, the schools are forced in this particular instance the schools are forced into actions that seem to make sense to the schools whether or not they actually work for the schools in the longer because they continue to be in uh, sort of competition with one another uh, the, but that's not necessarily in the interest of the system as a whole it, it, provide, it was part of this uh, sort of uh, uh, logic that uh, uh, in, in a, with the rising tide uh, lifts all boats, but everyone benefits. We now know very clearly that those market reforms didn't do that at all. They increased inequities um, and broadened the range of outcomes from young people, not necessarily to their advantage. Uh, and in our situation in, in Northern Ireland, because of the selective system, it was operating within almost a skewed market 
where, where the grammar schools had a market advantage just by virtue of where they were. Um, uh, the funding system reinforces some of those pressures. I mean, during the whole period, whenever we had fallen roles, virtually the full impact of fallen roles fell on the secondary schools, as the grammar schools continued to take in uh, numbers up to their notional capacity and so increased the proportion of the intake that, that they get, making life harder for the secondary schools to try and do what they were trying to do while at the same time they were trying to deal with a much wider range of challenge than the grammar schools had. You know, I don't blame any individual institution or even a sector for the way in which they operated in this situation because the dynamics of the market that they were in required them to do these sorts of things. But it doesn't actually work for everyone, uh, and that's the problem. So same with FE, and at the moment, schools are trying to keep as many students as they can in sixth form. The FE colleges are trying to pull as many students in uh, post-16 as they possibly can because they're under pressure of numbers. Then at, at 18, the FE colleges are trying to hold on to students. Universities are trying to increase uh, the, the numbers that they can take. Everyone's, everyone's competing because it's all resource-driven rather than being driven by a broader and sort of educational priorities or even economic and social priorities. Um, and if we could get, get back to that sort of more strategic view of what everyone's contributing, it would be much easier to get better outcomes for Northern Ireland as a whole. Now, we can't get away from the big strategic challenge, which is the denominational character sure. of schools and the fact that you've got a contrast, a conflict, a tension between the concept of parental choice and pupil choice with what's best for society. So how do we deal with that? Because clearly we need to bring kids together so that they're sure. more comfortable with people from other backgrounds. Sure. I mean, I think if it's, people often say that if we were beginning with a blank slate to design a new education system, we absolutely wouldn't create the, the sort of multiply divided one that we currently currently have. But that's the one we have, and so we've got to work on that, that basis. Um, the, I agree with you that um, the, uh, the fact that there are these denominational divisions, historic denominational divisions in the system, uh, create challenges. Um, the, I think sometimes there's a feeling that if you get rid of denominational schools, then somehow or other everything would be okay. Uh, I'm not sure that that's actually the case. Uh, the main problem for me with having separate schools like that isn't so much, I don't think they create sectarian monsters. Uh, I don't think they fuel sectarianism. What they do is create networks uh, which uh, are reinforced within the wider society. Um, and so for me, the key thing to try and create a more cohesive society is to disrupt those uh, siloed networks. Um, one way to do that is through integrated schools. Uh, another way to, to do that, I think, is through the initiatives that we, I've been working on for many years now around shared education, building build, build collaborative networks among schools and, and running shared classes among the schools. That, for me, is the, is the priority, to do something like that, uh, to interrupt some of the old tram lines that uh, sort of push young people in different directions. Um, it has to be linked to to uh, sort of the curriculum that they're followed, the issues that are addressed and the, the way in which schools are operating. Uh, and there's a key role for leadership because if keep in mind, right throughout the years of the, of the Troubles, uh, there was a huge rhetorical importance given to the idea of promoting reconciliation through education. Every leader of every educational sector said this was a really, really important thing. But if you looked at what happened in practice, it was clearly less important than virtually everything else. Um, you know, we have, the, we have, I think, one of the most innovative citizenship curriculums in the world, and uh, it's the lowest priority subject in our schools. We have, I think, uh, an incredibly 
uh, innovative history curriculum, but no one does, or very few people do it after age 14. You know, so there's there's some you know, there's there's some really key things that we need to do across a number of different levels to try and address these these issues. But sometimes sometimes the solution is cast, I think, in too simplistic terms. And have we actually got to grips with how we teach the history of this place? Because as I understand it, different kids learn different versions of history. Sure. The the the, the history curriculum we have is based on a multi perspective. Uh, view it recognizes that there's large parts of our history which are unproblematic and we should recognize that uh, that there are some parts of our history which to one community or the others are seen as important or not and we need to understand why those different judgments are made there's some parts of our history that are interpreted in very diff- various very different ways and we need to understand those uh, so the key there is about trying to give young people the sort of the, the tools and the concepts to try and understand why some of these historical challenges or challenges of history exist. The problem is that very few young people um, uh, take history uh, beyond the age of 14. So we know from studies that have been done that when they're being taught history in schools, that it does give them a broader perspective on things. But once they stop learning history in schools, then what, what fills the space is sort of community perspectives or community myths um, and partial views of history. So we know it can be done. The problem is that it's uh, we not enough young people have opportunity to, to engage with it. Same with the, the citizenship curriculum. I mean, the, the, the way that that was put together was brilliant for a divided society because it was all about teaching young people about the principles of of democracy, about rights and responsibilities, about justice and equality. The, the concepts that we would help young people become architects of a better future in Northern Ireland, they would have the language, the concepts, the ideas that they could be part about the big conversation about the type of society that Northern Ireland could become. The curriculum itself is absolutely brilliant, and many of the, the teachers that try to teach it are very committed to it, but it has got absolutely rock-bottom priority in the system, um, and you know, so... That, that's a good illustration of the, the problem. We can't say something is important unless we actually do something to make it important. If we put uh, the sort of preparing our young people to live fulfilled lives as citizens in our society and with all the challenges that our society has as one of the key purposes of education, then we would put resources, energy and effort and time into, into, into doing that. And at the moment, we don't. I've never heard any of my kids say that they had a good experience with citizenship classes within school, but yeah. the one which I have seen which worked really well was one run outside of school by the Northwest Migrants Forum. And, yeah. and, and that is based around the kids choosing to do it, and sure. their ones say that the kids that choose to do it are perhaps not the ones that are most in need of engagement. Sure. So the question really is then, how, do, how should schools engage more with our outside communities to to give kids a broader perspective on society? Well, I I think many teachers would be absolutely willing and committed to doing this sort of thing, but at the moment they are absolutely pressed down all the time around performance and results. Um, They have got a certain amount of curriculum to get through to make sure that the kids are able to to perform as well as they possibly can on exams. They're held, held to account by the inspection system around performance outcomes. The, you know, we have the, the league tables that are published every year. Um, we have the, you know, the sort of all the chat around the 
proportion of kids in any school are getting five or more good GCSEs with maths and English. It's if those, those when those are the things that people are are always dragged up in public for, then that's what they they feel obliged to spend their time trying to to deal with. Um, and so they're not given the space to do the other things, but because there are plenty of situations where. Uh, teach where teachers are given an opportunity, they can show that spirit of innovation and commitment. Um, we've seen this during the COVID crisis. Some of the things that, that many teachers have been doing during this whole crisis have been astonishing. Um, you know, so given the opportunity, teachers are prepared to do these sorts of things. At the moment, uh, they're squeezed down a very, very narrow trauma, and that leaves very little time for anything else. And you know, us as parents must accept blame, perhaps, and the political structures, because we focus on what the schools achieve in terms of exam outcomes. We don't say what the schools achieve in terms of citizenship and engagement in society. Well, yeah, I mean, again, whenever, whenever all the chat about education is about results, and results are a key filter for getting into university, and university is seen as the be-all and end-all of the outcome, then, uh, again, I'm not going to blame parents for putting those sorts of pressures on. The system creates those pressures. Um, it's the system uh, uh, opened up uh, a number of different sort of priorities uh, and put realistic uh, priority behind that, then things maybe would be different. You know, at the moment we we are almost our entire education discourse is based on an extraordinarily narrow terrain, and it obliges everyone to engage on that terrain, and that's the real problem. That's the real challenge. And there is still uh, a framework in which people think that success is counted in academic terms, yeah. and yeah. vocational outcomes are not treated with the same level of respect. And schooling that's doesn't typically focus very much on vocational outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't help that in, in our economy, uh, this you know, huge service-driven economy, enough lot of jobs in, public, in the public sector, um, you know, where we're not actually creating spaces for those qualifications and things to, vocational qualifications to have an impact. Well, we know in societies where they have highly regarded high-quality vocational qualifications that have uh, good employment outcomes for young people, um, that they are given a lot of, they're given high, high regard, they're given a lot of attention, a lot of priority because they're seen to provide routes to, to success. And it goes back to one of my earlier points that at the moment, the roadmap of the education system in Northern Ireland has one endpoint and the rest of it is sort of clouded in mystery. Um, and that's really not how things should be. And you can see the outcome in terms of what that means to the broader economy, where I think I read somewhere that the majority of university graduates within Northern Ireland go into the public sector rather than into the private sector, that there's analysis which says the private sector doesn't have the skills it needs at middle management level, which is where you might expect graduates to go into. We're producing more teacher training graduates than we can actually employ and we're not meeting the demands of industry in terms of the science graduates, nor of people with the right vocational skills. So in a sense, there's a mismatch there between what the economy needs and what the system provides. Yeah, I mean, one of the ironies is that in, in many parts of the UK, uh, uh, areas suffer uh, the magnetic attraction of London. Lots of graduates from cities in the north uh, head to London because that's where all the big opportunities are supposed to be. Um, 
Northern Ireland, ironically, uh, doesn't have that problem at all. Most of the people who go to the local university stay here uh, and get jobs here, but the, a lot of them end up in jobs which don't really make full use of their of their graduate skills. Um, and so we get a double sort of whammy in that way. Um, the uh, uh, And you're right, I mean, we, we need to find ways to... Um, to, to you make, get better value out of the the young the skills of the young people that we have, um, uh, and at the moment there is a bit of it looks like a bit of a vicious circle, um, fueled and paid for by massive subsidies from London. So a final question to you then, Tony, which is a massive question but a short answer. <laughs> how, how what is the role in schools in building a prosperous and inclusive society? Uh, I think the the, the one of the most important things about creating a prosperous and inclusive society is building, is having a school system that models it for the young people in it and models it for the wider society. When schools are working together, uh, when they're bringing young people together, whether it's through integrated schools or through shared education partnerships or any of, any of the other sorts of initiatives that are done in the city, if you can bring people together and show that that works to the mutual benefit of everyone, that model is what Northern Ireland could and should be like. Um, and this is one of the things which impresses me about so many of the people that I work with within education. Um, they, they do do this on a day and daily basis. They deal with the challenges and the problems that arise from that level of engagement. And they are modelling the sort of thing that all too often our politicians seem totally incapable of doing. You know, they're modelling what our future should be. Um, and I wish people would pay more attention to them. Tony, thank you very much indeed. That's very enjoyable and very informative. Thank you. Okay, a really in-depth conversation there on education and everything associated with that, Paul. I really found it interesting about the market pressures on school. It's like Tony talked about the entitlement framework, but how that's been adversely impacted by the fact that schools have to compete, particularly have to compete for people beyond the age of 16, and they're competing with further and higher education colleges and things like that as well. And... I mean, we're both parents, aren't we, Gerard? You know, and, and we both have our own views about what happens to our own kids. Uh, yours are at school, mine have left school not so many years ago. And as a parent, I have to say, I'm unhappy that schools don't always work sufficiently well together because once you get beyond uh, the GCSEs, once you get to A-level, then you have restricted choice and you can only have open choice for examinations and learning more if you have the schools working together. And actually the schools aren't always very good at working together. Uh, and that does create a problem, I think, and it can lead to uh, kids being pushed to do subjects that aren't actually necessarily the ones they want to do or the ones that fit their future options best. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the other things, and it's like we're funded by the Community Relations Council, and one of the things that we're really interested in is the community relations aspect or the, the citizenship aspect of it. Tony says that the curriculum here is actually really strong when it comes to dealing with uh, addressing history and also citizenship. But given the pressures that are on schools, that these subjects just aren't prioritised within schools. You know, they're not seen as important as creating rounded individuals for society, if you like. Yeah, and, and, you know, still talking as a parent, I mean, that's what my, my uh, kids have said, you know, that, that actually the school didn't prepare them sufficiently for their outside lives. Uh, and 
talk too much about things that weren't going to help them for the rest of their lives and too little about the things they really needed to learn about. And I think that, you know, within our society, clearly reconciliation is one of those things. And, you know, I, I'll be quite open. I've, um, the, the, the most effective engagement that I have seen with uh, school pupils has not been within the schools. It has been at events run by the Hollywood Trust and by the Migrants Forum. Uh, those events have been much more successful, but not all schools are willing to support those. So we need, I think, the schools to work on a more cross-community basis to engage with other schools, because that really is essential. Yeah. And the Hollywood Trust, of course, you know, is one of, one of those partners that can help with that. Yeah, for sure. And as a parent, as, as you were talking there, I think we need to take more responsibility there as well and see it as, you know, the final qualification isn't the be all and end all. It's let's produce fully rounded individuals who are going to be an asset to everyone that they come in touch with. Okay. Um finally, Paul, just to reinforce the edge the vocational element of qualifications just doesn't support it. According to Tony, he's saying that it works in other places, but it doesn't work here. Yeah, and I think we need to put this in the context of two recent reports, one of which was by the Pivotal Think Tank, which is a new organisation. We've met with them before and spoken with them. And the other is by the OECD, which is the Club of you know, Richer Nations. And they both reported that there are serious problems with our careers guidance system. Um, and I think that is really important to understand because if you're going to try and engage kids that don't feel that school is going to do them much good, then you actually have to really assist them in building aspiration at an early stage in their post-primary school. And that is something which I don't think our system has, has yet really got to grips with. Yeah, I, I think the way it's currently designed as careers as what university you're going to be. And that isn't necessarily going to be the case for most of the pupils. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. And and thank you to Tony for taking the time to meet with Paul. A really interesting conversation, as always. That's it for episode three of the podcast. Um, thanks to everybody for taking the time. Thanks for to you for listening to this podcast. Look out for future episodes as well, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll chat to you again soon. <laughs>